0: <clears throat> so we're in a series, even though we're four weeks in, we're only two weeks in because uh, we've had to, we've missed every other. So hopefully we'll be here next week, um, and um, we're we're basing it off of much of the content um, of Dr. Michael Heiser's book, The Unseen Realm, as well as some others. Some of his books are mentioned in your uh, in your bulletin, <clears throat> and the the goal of this is to, as moderns, say. Um, What if I read the Bible with the supernatural worldview of of an ancient Israelite or of a second temple Jew, someone who was around when Jesus had his earthly mystery? What if I had their mindset and I read the Bible and all of a sudden I start seeing things I never saw? All of a sudden I start seeing layers. I start connecting dots that I never connected because I'm a modern and I, I have a totally different worldview. Than these people do. So that's kind of one of the goals of this series is to say, let's try to get them in our mind and think like an ancient Israelite, think like a Second Temple Jew, so that when we read our Old Testament or New Testament, it comes alive to us in new ways. Um, Also mentioned the other week, I would love for you guys to submit questions. I've gotten a number from some of you. I'm sure lots of questions are going to come up. If there haven't before, they probably will tonight because we're getting into more weird stuff tonight. Um, Just to kind of recap, and hopefully you've you've been here, this series builds on itself. So if you're like just stepping in for the first time, I'm sorry. Um, Week one, we looked at this idea that the the ancient Israelites saw God as having a divine council. These are supernatural spiritual beings that are called Elohim. Any spiritual being is an Elohim. And he has a divine council. and he calls them sons of God. He calls them messengers, different titles. Those are telling us what they do, how they function. But he sees them as family, sons of God. That's that's the purpose for that language. In in an ancient um, system where you have a king, he would give the best jobs to family. And so, when we see the sons of God, okay, these are spiritual beings that are kind of higher in rank. They have higher status. And, um, and so we see this idea that God wants participation. When God makes decisions, he, he doesn't need This is one question that came up before uh, someone asked, well, why does God need a divine counsel? Well, he doesn't. <laughs> why does he need a human family? He doesn't. He likes participation, right? He created us not because out of need, He created us out of an overflow of love, we're told in Scripture. And then he says, I want you in my family, and I want you to participate. I'll tell you the ends we're going to get to, but I want you to help me decide how we're going to get there. And he does that with his divine unseen family as well. And what he ultimately longs for, we'll see in this series, is a blended family. His divine family and his human family. And in a couple weeks, we'll actually see... His plans for his human family actually outranks the divine family, which there's a, a lot of little places in Scripture that you've probably read things where it says, like, uh, don't you know that we will judge the angels? Right? I remember reading that and going, no, <laughs> why would I know? <laughs> what are you talking about? I have no reference for what you're talking about. But we're, we're starting to develop what the, an ancient Israelite would have thought. Week two, we looked at... There are three great rebellions in the epic story of Scripture. There's Genesis 3, and we all know about that one real well. The garden, the snake, right? The first parents. Yeah, yeah we, we know that. But there are two others that we're oftentimes blind to, we're, we're just not aware of. And so we started with the third one, and we're working our way backwards. I don't know why I did that. This, this is all weird stuff. I thought, I'll just do it backwards. Um, Genesis 11, week 2, we looked at this idea of when God... Uh, as a judgment on the people of the earth, he divorced them. He said, fine, you don't want anything to do with me? I, I'm uh, allotting you to other sons of God in my divine counsel. So he assigns them to these different sons of God. At some later point, we find out these sons of God rebel because they're corrupt. They begin abusing their people, their nations. Uh, they, they don't dispense God's just wisdom to the people. And in fact, they, they accept worship, which they were not supposed to do. And then they even try to uh, get Israel, God's people, to come worship them. They're corrupt, and God judges them. We looked at that. And then um, tonight, we're looking at, if we think of the, what's wrong with the world as a three-legged stool, Genesis 3, Genesis 6, Genesis 11. We've hit Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, this temple complex. Tonight, we're going to be looking at Genesis 6, verses 1 through 5, and it's another group of the sons of God. It's a different group, okay? These, these, are, these are different groups, and we're going to see even, even after their fallen rebellion, are, are they all on the same team? I don't know. They may have competing ideas. They certainly have the same end goal, but we don't know if they're all unified anyway. So tonight, the second rebellion... This is going to help also again explain why the world is as broken and messed up as it is, um, and this is also going to give some context and explain, if you've ever read the Old Testament conquest stories, this is Israel after the 40 years of wandering, and then they go into Canaan, and they, and they conquer Canaan, this is going to explain a lot of the, what's going on during the conquest narratives. It's also going to explain the origin of demons that we see in the New Testament. Of course, we get to Jesus and the Gospels, and demons are popping out all over the place, aren't they? I mean, they're just all over. And you kind of might wonder, why didn't, why didn't we see that in the Old Testament? Like, why there? What's, what's going on with that? So s- s- this will help give some context to that. And I'm not sure how far we're going to get. We'll just see, and this might be a two-part series, or we might get it all done tonight. We'll see. Um, Let me put my uh, uh, passage that we're going to look at up on the screen here. If you have your Bibles or want to open to them, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 6. And our kind of launching off point is going to be these first five verses. And we read this. Now, this is just before the flood, okay? This is leading up to the, the why of the flood judgment. When man began to multiply on the face of the land... And daughters were born to them, the sons of God. This is, remember, this is a different group, but of that same, you know, this is the divine council. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. They took as their wives any they chose. Then Yahweh said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years, which is to say that's when the flood's coming, 120 years from now. And then we have this comment, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and, were, and they bore children to them. These, the children, were the mighty men of old, who were of old, men of renown. And then verse 5, Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, And that every intention, this is something new, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Something's changed. Something's happened. That's different. That's never been the case with human. Sin's been around. Not like this, something has happened. So, our question is, what what happened that was so bad that God then says, I'm going to send a flood? And it's such a significant judgment that even after the flood, he goes, I won't do anything that extreme again. So something really bad has happened here that when I read the text, I'm kind of like, well, if it's, you know, is, is it really that, that bad? But whatever happened, again, it was bad enough that God sends judgment in the form of a flood and wipes this out. Now, the first thing I want to look at is, um, and we're, we will not spend a lot of time on this, but are these sons of God really divine beings? Um, and I think, I think all the evidence points to the fact that they are. Uh, a, a couple things. Number one, this phrase, sons of God, which is B'nai Elohim or B'nai Ha Elohim, every single time that appears in the Old Testament, in that exact phrase, it's referring to divine beings every single time. Secondly, the New Testament writers thought it was too. Um, let me go to a couple places Uh, this is 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Now, in context, and this is important, this will make sense of what, why does this thought click in Peter's head? This will make sense for later. He's talking about false teachers who have come into the church and are spreading information that's corrupting, okay? And that as soon as he brings up false teachers who are spreading false information that corrupts, he says, for, so here's, here's a little illustration, <laughs> For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, what, what account could that be? There's only one place where we have multiple divine beings sinning. Uh, and it's pre-flood because he admit, uh, did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to, this is an interesting phrase that you'll hear again, chains of gloomy darkness, to be kept until the judgment. So they're stuck. There is the point. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah as a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So what event is he talking about? Very, very clear what he has in mind. Leading up to the flood. He's talking about Genesis chapter 6. And he says, the angels who sinned. Now one, um, I think we mentioned this maybe week one, the language between even Hebrew and Greek Is a little, um, Hebrews a little more nuanced when it comes to divine beings and what they are. And uh, they have a word for angel, it's just malach, it means messenger. New Testament, they just sort of like, we're going to simplify this. Everyone's an angel. (laughs) Okay? Angel just means one of these divine beings, kind of thing. So Peter views, the way he reads uh, Genesis chapter six is that these are divine beings. Also, um, Jude, does the exact same thing. Now, Jude is also talking about false teachers, <laughs> spreading bad ideas that corrupt, and he immediately goes to Genesis 6 in his mind. He says, And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. What's the proper dwelling of a Elohim? <laughs> the unseen realm, right? They left their proper dwelling... He has kept in... Oh, here's that phrase again. You recognize this? Chains under gloomy darkness. So, both Peter and Jude are getting that phrase from somewhere. It's not in the Old Testament. Until the judgment of the great day, which means the day of the Lord. They're kept there. They're stuck there. This particular group of the sons of God, God put them there and they're in prison, so to speak, using that image of in, in chains. Now, there, there is still a resistance to this idea of accepting that the sons of God in Genesis 6 are divine beings. Uh, you'll find this in commentaries, sermons taught on it, um, number of reasons for that. But the, the consistent Jewish understanding of this passage during the Second Temple era, the consistent Christian view of it up until about uh, 300s when you, when you get to uh, Augustine or Augustine, it's a supernatural view. These are supernatural beings. But in, in, the, in the third century, you've got Augustine, who has huge influence on the doctrine of the church, uh, argues that this is, these are just uh, the line of Seth. And so it's the godly Sethite view is what we call it now. And since then, the church has pretty consistently missed this reading, sort of just pushed it away. Um, so that's kind of... And because it's weird... I mean, it is, right? Isn't it weird? I think it's super weird. But the reality is this is not the only place where things even similar to this might happen. Genesis chapter 18, Yahweh comes to earth with two men. We learn in chapter 19, they're angels. Remember, they go into Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember what happened? These are angelic supernatural beings, right? The men of the town try to grab them, to, to rape them, okay? That would have been a sexual encounter, okay? It's, that one doesn't seem weird to us, this one seems weird to us, because you, we think like, well, but a supernatural being, you know, I mean, does he, you know, does he have everything needed to do this? <laughs> um, and we just don't know what supernatural beings can and can't do. We're not told. The biblical authors seem to indicate maybe they have this ability. We don't <laughs> know. But the, to be faithful to the text, this does seem to be what's going on here. Now, there are a couple different... Supernatural explanations for how this could have happened. One is it's an actual sexual encounter, okay? It's actually procreating. Or some people who still take the supernatural view would say, well, um, maybe it's referring to more like what, how God enabled Sarah to supernaturally conceive. Sarah and Abraham, you know what I mean? It's a supernatural thing, but obviously in that, in that text there's, there's no sexual activity happening between God and Sarah, but He supernaturally enabled her to conceive. Some people take that. The text seems to point to a sexual transgression, though, an actual sexual transgression in some way. Um, what, what comes as a result of, of this Genesis 6, 1 through 5 is a two-pronged problem. There, there are two bad consequences. The first one, I'll, I'll mention first, and I'm not sure how much, we may just go through the first one and stop. We may be able to get to the second one, I'm not sure. The first one isn't as bad. It actually gets worked out largely um, into the story here. The second one is worse. The first problem is the Nephilim. And we'll, again, we'll kind of tease that out and ex- see what exactly the text is saying about them. The second problem, which is a bigger one, is the proliferation of human depravity. Human depravity is the, our, our human wickedness, our human brokenness, uh, our tendency to, to be self-destructive. It was amplified somehow in this act. And, and, and we'll get to the how the Jews thought about it. But they've, that's, that's what makes sense of that phrase. He saw that, that the human was deeply wicked. Every intention of their heart was bad, so it's like something happened here, and we don't have context for it, we'll get it, that amped up the self-destructive tendencies of the human person. So, let's do this. Let's look at the first problem first, the, uh, the Nephilim, and then hopefully we can get to the second one as well. So, we have divine cohabitation with this, the, this group of the sons of God, with the daughters of men, and they produce beings that are consistently described as being exceedingly tall. Okay, these are the giant clans that we're going to encounter as we go throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And it, it's, it seems to be as though these sons of God are, are trying to make imagers of themselves, kind of like Yahweh has done with Adam, and he, he made images. <laughs> These sons of God are saying, I want my own imagers. I want to raise up. And what we discover is they're rival imagers. They're going to become, God hasn't even called Abraham yet. That happens in Genesis 12. They're going to become a lethal threat to the people of Israel going forward here. And they're going to be what causes many, many of Israel's mess-ups and problems. Wandering in the desert 40 years, that's one. They were the root cause of that. So let's look at, I'm going to look at a couple of these passages. So this is, we're going to go fast forward. Israel has, um, God's called Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You've got the nation that's grown. It's been in slavery. Uh, God t- brought it out of exile. And he takes them to Canaan um, And he says, I want you to go in to Canaan, and you're going to displace the people. And so, uh, do you remember they send uh, 12 spies, one from each one of the 12 tribes, into Canaan. We say, we we want you to check it out. And they're there for 40 days. And they say, take some of the stuff as, as evidence to show us, is this land really as great as everyone says? And so the 12 spies come back, and you know, the, the two are like, oh, it, well, they all were like, it's awesome. It's it's better than you could even imagine. Um, two of them were like, let's let's do it, let's go in, let's let's take it. Ten of them, though, have this negative report. And this is this is um what they said here. We saw the descendants of Anak, the Amalekites, dwell in land. Now there's lots of Weird names. Uh, again, some of these are in your bulletin there. And you might think, well, the descendants of Anak. Who is Anak? We go down a little further. We read this. All the people that we saw in it are of great height. Oh, where have we heard that before? Um, and there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim. is a state. So when they go into the land, they immediately see these descendants of the Nephilim, these parts of the giant clan, and it's because of that that they say, we can't do it. And of course, the judgment on Israel, because they failed to trust. even though God said through Moses, I'm going to give it to you. You will beat them, I promise. But remember they said, we looked like we were grasshoppers in our own eyes next to them. They were these giant clans. And so as a result, of course, the people have to says, okay, you're going to wander for 40 years. We're putting this thing off 40 years until that whole generation of men who were of age to be soldiers, until they die out. And so that happens. And then we read in Deuteronomy, we read these words, Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as Yahweh told me. And for many days we traveled around Mount Seir. Then Yahweh said to me, You've been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward. Command the people. You are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. So be very careful. Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau, as a possession. That's one of uh, Abraham's other descendants. You shall purchase food from them with the money uh, that you may eat, and you shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. For Yahweh your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, Yahweh your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. So we went on, and from our, anyway, so he goes and he tells the story of uh, getting through, and um, it says, and then we turned, now this is interesting, God takes him up the trans, if you think about like where the Jordan River is, here's Canaan over here, he takes him up this side, and it's like, well, why are we going up this side, this isn't even, you know, the area, this isn't, you know, Canaan, and he goes, do you remember what I told you to do 40 years ago? You're not getting away from that, you're going to do that before you cross Jordan, and get into Canaan. I'm not letting it go. And what is it that he wants done? And We read this. Um, <clears throat> another group, he says, uh, wilderness of Moab, the Lord said, do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given it to Ar, to the people of uh, Lot for a possession, another one of Abraham's relatives. And he says, the Emim... Formerly lived there, a people great and many, and tall as the Anakim, like the Anakim, they are also counted as Rephaim, but the Moabites call them the Amim. (laughs) So you're right there. You're learning in in your bulletin. You've got like, I've got like uh, Anakim, Rephaim, uh, Zamzumim, all these. (laughs) They they were named by other people. And these are the names that all the people in this community are using to refer to these giant clans. Um, Like the Anakim, they are also kind of Repha'im, but the Moabites call them the Amim. And then he goes on to say, basically, um, you don't need to take over any of those places because I've gotten rid of the giant clans there. But then he says, but I do want you to go to the names of all the places where the giant clans are. And what's interesting is he uses two different words when he speaks of giant clan people versus just regular people. He says regular, the, you know, groups that have no giant clans in them, he says uh, drive them out, dispossess their land. To the groups that have the giant clan, he, he uses this phrase harem, which means you dedicate them to destruction. They're They're dead. They have got to die, but that harem is used exclusively exclusively for the places that have. Rephaim, Anakim, uh, Nephilim all all of their descendants. What's interesting is, let me go to. uh, Here we go. This is interesting. Um, Moses and Joshua are the two guys who are primarily leading the effort to to wipe out the giant clans, okay, these quasi-human divine beings. The way that Joshua, at the end of the book of Joshua, the way he describes, we're done, is he says this, "Um, there there was none of the Anakim left in the land. And then he goes, dot, 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 oh, except the ones that got away to Gaza and Gath, and Ashdod. <laughs> Those are over on the coast. Those are the Philistine cities over on the coast, okay? Places like, and look at the word here, places like Gath, okay? <clears throat> this, the, the giant clan are, are a thorn in the side to Israel all throughout their history. <clears throat> Interesting, we get to this story here. You guys know this story real well, David and <clears throat> Goliath, this, this story, it's not just, oh, the underdog beat a guy who he shouldn't have beaten. That's not it. There's a deep theological meaning to this whole concept of David and Goliath. Look where, look where Goliath is, is from. See this right here? Goliath of Gath. Gath, where did we just read that? Remember the ones that ran away that, that Joshua wasn't able to, to kill, and they went over to Gath and a few other Philistine cities along the Mediterranean coast. <clears throat> David is coming out, and here comes one of the last remnants of the giant clan, and the question is, who, who, who can beat him? And that's why, that's why David, David's not just like, yeah, I'm going to go beat up some big guy. He says, no, no, God is behind this. This this is a divine battle, a divine war in all of these things here. And we'll see in a a couple minutes this idea of what it was that... um, This has some implications to the um, profile of who the Messiah is going to be. Because as we've said the past few weeks, when the Messiah comes... The ancient Jewish mind would expect he has to deal with Genesis 3, that problem. He's got to fix that. But he's also got to deal with Genesis 6, what happened right here, when the sons of God left their right abode, and they did a couple things, which we don't fully understand. And then he also has to fix the divorcing of the nations and assigning them to the rebellious, well, not at the time rebellious, the gods who then rebelled and became hostile so we saw week one, or week two, last two weeks ago, the way he's solving Genesis 11 is by reclaiming them, by, by taking away the authority and the legitimacy of the powers that are over the nations, himself having all authority, and then based on all of that authority, sending them out to say, the gospel, the gospel message is, your, your gods have been dethroned. There's a, there's a the the son of the Most High, he wants you back in his family, but he he also has to fix this problem right here and what's happening. Now, um, I also I also mentioned this that this account also gives explanation, uh, theological explanation for the existence of demons. Um, and you ready for another weird thing? Here it is. Um, Peter and Jude, if, if you remember, told us that the rebellious sons of God were in chains of gloomy darkness, stock, until the end of days, until the day of the Lord. That's, that's um, often oftentimes said. Well, let me, let me just go to a couple of things here. <clears throat> this is interesting. So, there, there are a number of places, I'll just show you one, where... Um, re- Rephaim, Anakim, Rephaim is one of the most common ones, just blanket refer to them. They're, they're mentioned numerous times in the Old Testament, spoken of, they're, they're in the abyss. But we're not told they're in chains. In fact, here's, here's one passage. Um, Sheol is, is the ancient Hebrew-Israelite concept of the grave. Sheol could refer to a literal grave or it could refer to the place of the dead okay? But there's bad guys in Sheol. Like, you don't, you don't want to go to Sheol. The righteous had the hope, God won't abandon me. Like, one day I will get out of Sheol. I, I, I won't be stuck there. But it's interesting who has stated many times, do you know who's in Sheol? It says, um, Sheol uh, beneath, he, this is a context speaking to the king of Babylon saying, like, you think you're so great and you're, you're going to perish, Shield beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades. Me, <clears throat> I don't know if you can see this here. Uh, what's in blue down there? That says Rephaim. The Rephaim <laughs> are roused up there to meet you. Okay? it's sown all throughout, especially the prophets. Do you know who's in Sheol that is is scary but doesn't seem to be enchained is the Rephaim. Um, the consistent Jewish teaching. Most Jewish groups, you've got a lot of different Jewish sects. They they agree about little. I mean, they have very different views, right? You get even to the New Testament and you've got Pharisees and Sadducees and Sanhedrin and, you know, they've got different views and, and they fight. <laughs> the one thing that every sect of Judaism in the intertestinal period agreed on is that demons are the disembodied spirits of the dead Nephilim. That's what they thought they were. In fact, if you if you read some of the uh, writings of the Dead Sea Scrolls, these are the scrolls that were these predate Jesus. They were f- discovered at Qumran in like 1947, but they go back pre-Christian era. Okay, and in those scrolls, what, they speak of demons as bastard spirits, and they say uh, the Book of Enoch says, yeah, these are these are the demons. This is where they originated from. You ever wondered why, um, <clears throat> let me show you, uh, if I can find it here, yeah, let me just type it in, Luke 11, um, Luke 11, chapter, uh, verse 24, this is interesting, this is Jesus speaking he's giving a teaching on demons. Um, he's, he's, he's accused of driving out demons by the power of Beelzebub, uh, which is a, a name for kind of like Satan. <clears throat> and he says, well, that's ridiculous. If I'm like a house divided against itself, you've heard that phrase where, you know, that's where it comes from. Basically, if I'm on his team working against his team, that's not going to help his team, okay? So he's saying that's stupid, you know, that's ridiculous. And then he gives a little uh, example of this sort of thing with demons, but look what he calls a demon, and he does this numerous places. When an unclean spirit, what makes something You know, you know, clean and unclean in the Old Testament. You eat the wrong thing, that makes you unclean, right? Um, spirits aren't eating things. You know what else makes something unclean? A forbidden mixture. A forbidden mixture make something unclean. All, everything that's being communicated about demons is that they're an impure mixture of their bastard spirits, pointing to this idea that these are the disembodied spirits of the dead giant clans, the Nephilim and all of their descendants. And so again, we see when Jesus comes on the scene, why is it that they're just popping up All over the place. Interesting. Even um, this—it's in. uh, I think it's in Luke. When Jesus goes to Jewish areas, do you know how demons address him? Son of David. When Jesus goes to Gentile areas that are controlled by others, do you know what they call them? Son of the Most High. Oh, that's that's Deuteronomy thirty-two language. That's. Genesis 11, when the Most High divided up the nations. Interesting little things there that we see. Now, one question that oftentimes comes to mind is, I thought the flood wiped them out. How are they still around? (laughs) Right? Um, Wasn't the flood supposed to wipe them out? Yeah, I think it was. But it's interesting, you have the author of Genesis say right there in Genesis 6, he says, they were on the earth in those days. Oh, and also afterwards, so he's aware of it. So, wh- how did that happen? Uh, short answer: We don't know. There are theories. Um, a few of the theories go like this. This is, and 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 you'll you'll find this in ancient Jewish writings. They they were tracking on this too. They were thinking about it. Um, there are, and all of these theories have problems with them. One theory is that um, Noah or one of his family members, you know, was was a carrier, so to speak. <laughs> Um, there's even one story in the Dead Sea Scrolls that <clears throat> records, um, a fight between, uh, Noah and his wife <clears throat> and, um, or no, no, Noah's parents, Noah's parents. That's what it was. And, uh, the dad comes to Noah's mom and is like, are you sure this is my kid? You know? And she's like, don't you remember the other night? And he's like, okay, okay. But, but it's, it's hinting at this idea, oh, maybe his father was giant. There's even one, uh, a couple Jewish texts which speaks of Noah as being a giant. They're trying to make sense of this. They're trying to figure it out. So that's, that's one theory. Again, I think there are problems with the theory. Um, there's another theory that the, the, the flood was a localized flood. It wasn't global. So there could have been some areas like uh, the Aegean Sea near, near that area. We know there were people over there. The Egyptian texts tell us about people in the Aegean Sea who were sea people, meaning they had boats. And the sea people eventually make their way over, and they're the Philistines. The Philistines are the sea people, or at least descendants of them. Is it possible that in those 120 years, some of these Nephilim traveled over to the Aegean Sea, and they're they're with the sea people that later come back as the Philistines? Um, There's even a a grammar question um, that goes like this. The Nephilim, you see verse 4 there, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. It says, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, Hebrew scholars, which I'm not one, will will say this can be translated whenever. So, it could be um, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards, whenever the sons of God came into the daughters of man. Meaning, could this have happened more than once? Maybe it happened before, wiped them out. Maybe this happened again. People who, who like that view will oftentimes even point to, um, you ever wondered about this weird phrase, Paul is encouraging head coverings on women? It's a modesty issue, um, and it's a long story why, but hair was a sexual thing. It, it, it would be almost close to like your sexual organs. Just, I know it's weird. That's just kind of how they viewed it, and so having a head covering is being modest. You're not flaunting yourself. Okay, don't come to church with no pants on. Essentially, is the idea. He's saying wear pants. Okay, women cover your head, and then he goes because of the angels, and then just goes right on. <laughs> and you know we read that we're like because of the wait, like the angels have rules or something that we're supposed. Well, maybe. He's thinking, you know, the last time that immodesty happened, really bad stuff came as a result of it. So if you as the church are going to be immodest, guess what? Really bad stuff is going to come as a result. Now, does Paul think it's possible to happen again? I don't know. (laughs) But he's at least saying immodesty leads to really destructive things. So maybe he's using it as kind of a parallel in some way, but maybe that's what he hasn't. Maybe he does think it's a possibility, even if it doesn't actually happen in that way. Here's, here's the last thing that I want to get to. Um, <clears throat> the three people who are considered uh, the most connected with wiping out the giant clans, the Nephilim, are Moses. We read about him doing it. He, he, he goes with his warriors, with his people, to wipe them out. Secondly, and we already talked about that, Joshua also is someone who is set and intent on obeying God to wipe out the Nephilim. And then finally, we see the one highlighted is David. And of course, it's during David's time that the last of them are wiped out, and they're, they're gone, okay? There are no Nephilim on the earth today. They, they were wiped out during David's reign. And this is what I think is so interesting. You, you remember we said um, the Messiah, his profile is expected to have touch points in these, in these things, right? Well, you go to Acts chapter three, the New Testament writers were making these connections. Remember in Acts chapter three, when Peter's giving his address and he's talking about the person of Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, guys, don't you remember? In Deuteronomy, Moses said, God will raise up another prophet like unto Moses. And he's like, that was him, that was Jesus, okay? So you've got Jesus who was like unto Moses, his name is Yeshua, Joshua, okay? And he's the Davidic king. The profile of Jesus, the New Testament authors would see, he is the new Moses, he's the new Joshua, he's the new David, but he does those things perfectly. And so these, these demonic encounters have new gravity to them when you see the one who's like unto Moses who's named Joshua and who, who is the Davidic king who wiped them out, that he has these, these sharp, strong encounters with these spiritual beings that are trying to re-inhabit a body again. And if it's accurate what they believe, that's because they used to be embodied. And they're seeking re-embodiment. And they're sowing chaos. And they're intentionally a lethal threat to God's people, to Israel. And of course, that's exactly what we see doing demon's doing, is that they are a threat to God's people and to what He <clears throat> is doing. And we're going to have to get to the second problem next week, I guess. I thought I could cover it all, but I can't. The, the next week, the sort of second prong in what happens when the sons of God uh, come here, it's, it's not the Nephilim problem. Again, that one is largely wiped out. There's still some effects of it. But the biggest problem is this idea of what they did when they came. They corrupted humanity at a whole new level. And again, they sort of amped up, they amplified, um, emphasized, enabled, helped humanity to become more self-destructive, to become more evil. And Jesus has to fix that problem in his coming. And so we'll look at exactly how is that, we'll look at the broader context of this story, because When you read the original Genesis 6, 1 through 5, it's Nephilim are there, sons of God, and then there's this comment that doesn't seem like it's connected at all. Oh, and people were really messed up. Well, we don't get that because we're missing the ancient Mesopotamian context that they had really, really in the back of their mind. They all just assumed and they knew. So that's where we'll go next week. Let me just read a benediction for you as you go out. The grace of King Jesus, who is Lord, the love of God, the Father, and may the fellowship, that's this, the connection, of the Holy Spirit be with you. That's my prayer for you this week. Love you guys. Thanks for being here. Thanks for leaning. Thanks for engaging. Always good to see your faces. Have a great week. See you next Wednesday.